Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. So how can we make this case? Well, one way we can do it is to point out to people that there's no essential difference between the embryos you once were and the adults you are today that would justify killing you at that earlier stage. Arguments cannot be religious or non-religious. Arguments can either be valid or invalid, or sound or unsound. The substance view is the idea that from when you come into existence of fertilization until you die naturally, you are the same individual at every point in your life. So if it is wrong to kill you now, it was wrong to kill you then. Greetings and welcome to Pro-Life Thinking, a Life Training Institute podcast in which we will talk about the abortion issue and larger issues related to bioethics in a way that's winsome, reasonable, and persuasive. I'm your host, Clinton Wilcox, and the guest that I have joining me today is uh, Michael Buratovich. I think I actually forgot to ask him for, for a bio, and so I'm actually just going to read the bio that I retrieved off the Spring Arbor website and off the uh, back of his book. So uh, Michael A. Borotovich is professor of biochemistry at Spring Arbor University. He has taught biochemistry, cell biology, genetics, genes and speciation, human physiology, senior seminar and pharmacology. He earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from UC Davis and his PhD in cell and developmental biology. Uh, and developmental biology from UC Irvine. He has also directed student research projects in fruit fly development, antimicrobial agents, and fruit fly repellents and attractants. He has published articles in numerous encyclopedias, developmental biology, Drosophila Information Service, reports of the National Center for Science Education, genetics, stem cells, and development, recent patents on anti-cancer discovery, and perspectives on science in the Christian faith. He runs the blog Beyond the Dish and is also a licensed lay preacher with the Baptist Union of Great Britain. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Clint. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here. I've, I uh, was actually recommended your book by, uh, by a friend and colleague in the pro-life movement, and it, it was just, a, just, a enjoy, just an enjoyable read. It gets fairly technical in some spots, but consider, considering the conversational nature of the book, it was just you know, just real, real easy to, to get through. I, you know, greatly enjoyed it. It's been a great resource for me. Thank you. I wrote that book because of students, actually. They kept telling me, you really should take these answers and put them together into a book. And the first iteration of the book, I sent them a sample chapter. We went to the pizza parlor across the street. And I said, well, what do you think? And they looked at each other and said, well, I learned something. Well, I, I said, okay, guys, stop hedging. This is not a class. Just stop right. hedging. And they said, okay, it stunk. It was boring. It was terrible. Oh. So I didn't really want to hear that. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, what the scripture says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And right. uh, that's when the idea of actually taking their letters to me and the answers I gave them and developing those answers a little more fully uh, really came to, into fruition. So the book is really their questions to me and me answering their questions. So I really need to thank my students for <laughs> not just pushing me to write the book, but also in the format in which it finally found itself. Okay, so uh, so we are recording this show live. And if you have a question for Michael, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, that number is 646-668-8597. Uh, and by the way, am I pronouncing your, your last name correctly? Uh, Baradovich. Oh, Baradovich. Okay. Uh, my, my apologies. I, yeah, I was. I figured it was either Baratovich or Baradovich, and I, I, I had a 50-50 chance of, of getting it. I guess I chose the wrong one. But, oh, believe you know. me, it's. I've had lots of iterations of pronunciations right. of it. So <laughs> Baratovich is frankly pretty close. As I used to hear a lot when I was a kid, knowing is half the battle. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> okay, so the the first question that I usually ask all, all of my guests. 
is why are you pro-life? What, what was it that led up to your pro-life views? Well, I was raised Roman Catholic, so I was kind of uh, pro-life by genetics. And then when I went to college, I had a good deal of that challenged. And um, I was in the sciences, so I was in microbiology and genetics and things like that. So I had to consider pretty strongly why was it that I thought that uh, ending the life of uh, an unborn baby was morally wrong. And most of the arguments that I came across went something like, well, the mom, she's in dire straits. You're really going to force her to have that baby? And I think what they meant by that was, are you going to compel a young woman to be a life support system for a baby that she really wasn't planning to have and what have you? And when I considered these types of arguments, I said to myself, you know, this argument tries to separate the act of conception from the responsibility of having a kid. The two really go together. If you want to try, that's my whole problem with the whole unplugging the violinist argument, is it almost assumes as though babies just kind of drop out of the sky from somewhere. It kind of removes the way babies are made from the responsibility and the need to, to be a mother to them. So, um, the more I discovered as I studied uh, eventually uh, development uh, itself, no matter where I turned, if uh, somebody was studying sea urchins, uh, they always talked about the sea urchin embryo. And the concept that a sea urchin embryo was not a sea urchin, not a very young sea urchin, was just completely mm-hmm. absurd. My work was in the fruit fly, Drosophila melanogaster. And again, the Drosophila embryo was something we worked with a lot, but no one would have ever entertained any sort of idea that a Drosophila embryo was not a member of the the species Drosophila melanogaster, was simply very young. Mm. But yet, for some reason, when it came to humans, the human embryo, for some reason, was was sui generis. It was something unto its own. It was unique. It somehow just didn't quite fit into all this. And that really, to me, seemed to be doublespeak. For any other laboratory animal, be it a worm, be it a fly, be it a mouse, be it a fruit, uh, whatever, a sponge, hydra, whatever, the embryo of that animal was the same species as the parent of that animal. It was a very young version of the animal, but for some reason, when it came to humans, that wasn't the case. I just found I couldn't buy that. If, in fact, Drosophila embryos are young Drosophila, if sea urchin embryos are young sea urchins, then a human embryo is a young human. Now, the fact that it has to be nurtured inside the mother uh, complicates the issue a bit. But in terms of the essence of what the embryo is, it doesn't complicate it at all. It is a member of the human species, albeit one that's very young, albeit that one that's very small, independent, and what have you. But it's a member of the human species, and therefore, I think at the very least, while it doesn't have a right to a driver's license or the right to vote or bear arms or something like that, it at the very least has the right not to be harmed. That's why I'm pro-life. It's funny that you mention the idea that, you know, my body, my choice kind of separates the reproduction from the uh, responsibility because one of the uh, thought experiments that Judith Jarvis Thompson in her famous essay uses is the idea of people seeds floating around out there that come. And like if you open your window to get a breeze in and a people seed drifts in and implants itself on your carpet, do you then have an obligation to provide for that people seed? And she would argue no. But that that's kind of this whole idea that she's separating the conception from the responsibility because she literally has a thought experiment about people seeds drifting in rather than the act of conception being that act that actually brings the people seeds into existence. Yeah, those are the reasons why I don't. I've never really found those arguments. Uh, well, they're interesting. I don't find them very convincing, mm. uh, because there are steps you take in order to conceive a child, and uh, there, there's a the act of of sexual union that that brings that child into existence. Um, to try and say, well, it you know, just kind of floats into you. Um, come on, we all know how babies are made. We we don't have to go right. through that birds and the bees sort of discussion. Um, These sorts of discussions really try to separate the two. And while there are cases where women do end up giving, uh, conceiving babies that they really didn't have much choice in conceiving, those are fringe issues to me. I don't think you can use a fringe issue to try to decide a a central point. Uh, Because 
babies are made with contribution from two parents, um, like it or not, you've become a parent. And so the, the, the discussion always came back to that. Well, look, um, we had health class. We're all adults here. We know how babies are made. Why do you want to kind of take that out of the equation? Mm. It was almost as though, well, she's pregnant. What does she do now? Well, what happened before that? Uh, the, the question then is, what is the unborn? So it just kept coming. I kept kind of having to drag it, kicking and screaming back to that one choice. What is the unborn? What is the unborn? Mm. Every yeah. time we ask that question, what is the unborn? Well, you've got fruit fly embryos. You have sea urchin embryos. So human embryo is not human. Uh, I'm not tracking with that. Can you explain it to me? And I really never had yeah. a good explanation for that one. Well, one of the things that really struck me in your book is you, you definitely seem to be very much aware of the literature on abortion because you, you not only refer to a lot of pro-life thinkers like uh, you know, Robert George, Patrick Lee, Christopher Tollefson, guys like that, but you also interact with the people on the other side as well. It, it's not just great, but it, it improves the credibility as well that you're interacting with, with the people on both sides. They have useful things to say, and I think uh, we do a great disservice uh, not just to the, the topic itself, but really to the, the, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, if we don't take argue, other people's arguments seriously and represent them faithfully. So yeah. that, that was my, my, my goal in the book, is to really try to understand what someone else is saying. And then you, I tried, each time when a student asked a question, I said, well, so-and-so might have had this argument, and this is kind of how they put it. And I tried to put it as charitably as possible because yeah. I really don't like straw man thinking where you you summarize kind of the, the least strong version of that argument. I tried to make as solid an argument, as I, at least as I, as I understood it, uh, whether I mm. got it right or wrong uh, remains to yeah. be seen. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, being pro-life myself, I would say you probably have it mostly right. But, of course, you know, intellectual humility would, would require that we always take the arguments of the other side seriously, because we may have made a, a misstep somewhere. And so someone might be able exactly. to point that out. So, yeah, exactly. So the full title of your book is the stem cell epistles, letters to my students about bioethics, embryos, stem cells, and fertility treatments. Your book is basically a book of email exchanges between your students who had questions to ask outside of class and yourself, the instructor of these students. And even in some cases, not your students, but students who were referred to you. What is it that inspired you to actually compile all of these correspondences into a book? When the stem cell issue broke in 1998, uh, with Thompson's first publication of the derivation of the first human stem cells, I said to myself, uh, this troubles me. I'm not completely sure why it troubles me, but it troubles me. Now, we all have moral intuitions, and sometimes those moral intuitions are, are, are not correct upon further reflection. Sometimes, however, there's something to them. So I said, I really need to know more about this. And as I thought more about this, and as I read more about this, as I read Thompson's interviews with news, news agencies and so on and so forth, um, I discovered that he had used embryos that were left over from in vitro fertilization. And while these were embryos no one wanted to um, adopt, they in fact were young human persons at this very early stage. And by harvesting the inner cell mast cells in the center of the embryo, those embryos had been destroyed. That early life, which had it been nurtured uh, within the womb of a mother, might very well have uh, given, produced a, uh, a bouncing baby nine months later. Um, mm. but their lives were ended for the sake of research. And uh, I, I said, this is why this troubles me. It's not that he necessarily made embryonic stem cell cultures, it's that he destroyed embryos to do it. So I said to myself, with my training in developmental biology, I have something to say about this, but I'm going to kind of lay back. I just started at Spring Arbor in 1999. Um, after being a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania, I uh, followed the literature as closely as I could. I thought about it. And then uh, in class, nothing really hones a topic like teaching it to students and having students kind of probing, prying questions kind of come at you from all directions. And then um, as uh, students started to ask me questions, they started to tell their uh, family and friends, and then they started asking me questions, and the whole thing just kind of snowballed. So I yeah. 
was encouraged really by them and really by others, other um, pro-life workers uh, here in Jackson, uh, Michigan. We have uh, Kathy Potts, who uh, is the leader of the local pro-life uh, organization and uh, the Center for Women, so on and so forth. And uh, she encouraged me too. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I put together some sample chapters. I put together a book proposal. Uh, I gave it to students. They didn't like it. I completely retooled, did the the chapters and so on and so forth. And then really had to end up, I had the book written first and I had to shop for a publisher. And that was a very long process. And during oh. that time, the book kept going through rewrites and iterations. And as new information came in, I kept updating things here and there. And then a whiff and stock finally uh, saw my proposal and uh, decided to publish it. So it was a combination of other pro-life workers and students and then just me just really rolling things over in my head time and time and time again. Philosopher Frank Beckwith endorsed your book, saying that not only do you bring your scientific expertise to the issue, but also your awareness that philosophical and theological questions percolate beneath the scientific questions. What are some of the uh, philosophical and theological questions that percolate beneath the scientific ones? Well, I think first and foremost, uh, the the question becomes very relevant when you stare at the embryo and you say, can I use this as an experimental subject Mm -hmm. Uh, and with such experiments that will end us life? The first question, I think, first and foremost, is what is the embryo? What are my obligations to the embryo given what it is? What can and can I not do to the embryo? Um, And how, how should this play out in legislation then? Today, uh, we have a fertility industry that is pretty largely unregulated. It's kind of a wild west. And the embryo is really viewed as a commodity in many ways. Uh, Women pay lots of money uh, so that they can uh, get pregnant. And the embryos that are generated are things that are made to produce a, a baby. They're they're really an economic sort of uh, factor. You implant them. They take, you get a baby, you get, you know, you get a big payday. Hmm. Um, is that a normal way to, to is that a, a, a moral way to view the embryo? Uh, given what is the embryo, what are my obligations to it? Um, what sort of research then should be allowed with regard to the embryo? And if we have artificial reproductive technologies and we have supernumerary embryos, extra embryos, additional embryos, what should we do with them? Should we be should have all these embryos that are stored under cryogenic storage? That's a big question too. The term souls on ice has been used. Mm. This is an I think an enormous question. There's been quite yeah. a bit of work as to what parents who have made these embryos and now have them in cold storage, how they view those embryos. And parents by and large view them as, as children. Essentially, they have this intuition that even though the mom is not carrying one of these at this time, these are still their children. And many researchers have uh, reported this, and there's almost a tongue in the cheek, a little wink there. Yeah, but we know better, so on and so forth. Well, look, that moral intuition that those parents have is very strong and it's very powerful. Perhaps it's telling us something. So what is the embryo? What are my obligations to it? What sort of research then should be allowed how does this reflect in legislation? And then I think, uh, fifthly, if the unborn has become a patient, which with fetal surgery now, the unborn definitely has become a patient, where on that continuum of development do we view the embryo as a patient who now has rights, even patient rights? That's another, I think, theological question that kind of starts to percolate up through the all the scientific rigmarole about development and so on and so forth. So yeah. those are kind of the, the the big five, I would say, and they have lots and lots and lots of spinoffs in terms of mm. implications for uh, assisted reproductive t- technology, artificial reproductive technology, in vitro fertilization, storage of embryos, uh, embryonic stem cell research, so on and so forth. I'm sure you, you obviously understand the scientific landscape a lot better than I do. We used to look at 
various types of people like uh, black people or Jews or Cambodian people. Different genocides have happened because we've looked at different people groups and have said, okay, that's not a person. We need to dehumanize them so that we can perform experiments on them and those kinds of things. The experts, you know, not, not just the scientific experts, but philosophers also recognize the embryo as a member, as a biological member of our species, but they make arguments that that embryo is not a person. Uh, I'm wondering if you might maybe have any insight into why, considering all of these other atrocities that we now recognize that we've done against different people groups, why it is that scientists and philosophers are so willing and so quick to look at the embryo and say, okay, that's something that we can do experiments on for the betterment of of humankind. Do you have any particular insight into that? Well, I think the argument they make uh, goes something like this. It, It really doesn't look like me. It really doesn't act like me. It doesn't have the same capabilities as me. Um, uh, the bioethicist Arthur Kaplan, for example, uh, will say things like, well, doesn't have muscles, doesn't have endocrine glands, doesn't have teeth or bones, uh, really doesn't have any of these adult tissues. Uh, and that argument, I think, on an intuitive face can be pretty powerful because if you hold up a picture of an unborn baby and say, should you have the right to terminate the life of this baby? It, that baby looks a lot like you. It's just small. Mm-hmm. You look at a blastostage, uh, blastostage embryo, that blastostage embryo, blastocyst stage embryo, I'll get that out one of these days. The blastocyst stage <laughs> embryo right. really doesn't look very much like you. It's a sphere of some 120-some-odd, 128-some-odd cells when it's four days old, and it, it's Kaplan is right. It doesn't have uh, muscles. It doesn't have bones. It doesn't have endocrine glands. It doesn't have teeth. It doesn't have any brain or neuron cells or any of those sorts of things. So I, I think the argument really centers around the way the embryo looks. The problem with this argument, and I have been up and down this corridor several times with colleagues of mine, is what is normal for the way a human being looks. If you show me your baby pictures, and we, in fact, we we did this once. We said, okay, you have to bring in a baby picture, and we put the baby pictures on the wall, and we said, can you pick out whose baby picture is whose? And uh, we, in some cases, we could tell who, who was who and so on and so forth. In other cases, we really had a rough time. What is normal for someone at that early stage? What is normal for someone when they get older? Um, I had a uh, high school reunion, and I started looking through my yearbook. And then when I met these people decades later, they had really, really changed. Which was their normal appearance when they were in the yearbook or when they were older? The fact is that blastocyst stage embryo looks exactly the way it should look for that particular period in its life. So the fact that it doesn't look like you should be qualified as it doesn't look like you yet. Furthermore, it looks exactly the way you did when you were that age. We change in appearance as we get older. And if you were to take it and fast forward it, you would see that there are some events that are pretty seminal in the way that embryo is going to, is going to achieve its final form. So the argument, again has to do with, I think, an intuition of, well, the embryo just, it doesn't look this, it, it has a certain look about it. It doesn't look like me. Therefore, it, it, my obligation to it and my connection with it is really not that high because it is so different from me. There's another thing I've been kicking around here, and that is functionalism, where we grade something on the basis, we grade a person even, on the basis of what that person is able to do. And So much of our debates today, even in politics or things like this, center around whether or not we think something has a certain amount of value. I noticed this when I was talking to a student really a couple of weeks ago, then just this morning. They were saying, you know, do people really need an AR-15? And I asked him, what if someone was a gun enthusiast and they liked shooting at outdoor ranges, and the AR-15, because it's modular, they could put different stocks on it, and their wife could shoot with them because it was a gun that uh, had a module to it. Now it's a product that has a lot of value to them. 
you think it should be banned because you don't see it, you don't have, it doesn't have any value to you. Whereas the Area 15 for this gun enthusiast, they see value in it. So banning it for them would be a big deal. The embryo to the scientist, to the philosopher, because it is so different from them, they don't attach any value to it. When in fact, that embryo can be adopted, it can be implanted in the mother, it can then grow up into a bouncing baby boy. And now there's an undeniable connection ontologically in terms of essence between that embryo and that bouncing baby boy. To that adopted mother and that adopted father, that embryo has an incredible amount of value. So really it becomes a, a, a it's reduced to, well, it, I don't feel as though it has any value. And I think that's really where that argument comes from. That's the best I can make out of it. Yeah, so we are here with Dr. Michael Baradovich, and uh, so we'll, we'll be back in just a couple of minutes. I have a, a quick ad to play here for an upcoming conference. So we'll be, be back in just a couple of minutes. They are a small grassroots team of apologetic speakers, each of whom has their own small grassroots ministry. Then one day they had an idea. It started almost as a joke, but quickly bloomed into a full-fledged ministry plan. Gathered together as bloggers, podcasters, bloggers, and writers, each with their own small voice, but drowned out and passed over by the grandeur of celebrity apologists. From the eastern seaboard to the west coast and various locations in between, they come from different backgrounds, but they share one great message. This journey of these thinkers, each with his own small influence in some small corner of the Christian apologetics world, will finally converge in one location. They will meet one another for the very first time. This is a team of speakers like no other. Among them is a man who has struggled against seizures and brain surgery, and yet has remained brilliant in his defense of the gospel. A former atheist whose conversion to Christianity now has him battling the worldview he once held. A former gospel rapper whose ministry on behalf of urban believers fights for racial reconciliation. An elementary school teacher who strives to make apologetics accessible to the everyman. And finally, a man with Asperger's Syndrome married to a woman with Asperger's Syndrome. His passion, along with apologetics, is to keep the church informed on matters of how to minister to the autistic brothers and sisters in their midst and of the treasure that his unconventional marriage has been to him. In May of 2018, the group, now known as the Mentionables, will hold its very first national conference in Greensboro, North Carolina. This unusual group, the Mentionables, which came together almost by accident, now invite you to join them. Come see their messages united. Come see what small voices can do to present one loud noise for the kingdom. Join us for Mentionables, the conference, 2018. For more information, visit the Mentionable Facebook group page or contact Greensboro Christian Church at 336-621-5226. Mentionable, the conference. Many small voices present one big message. All right, and we're back with Dr. Michael Baradovich. Uh, if you uh, and we're, we're talking about his book, The Stem Cell Epistles: Letters to My Students About Bioethics, Embryos, Stem Cells, and Fertility Treatments. Once again, if you have any uh, questions you'd like to call in and ask Dr. Bradovich, you can call in at 646-668-8597. Once again, the number is 646-668-8597. Michael, one of the major themes in your book is stem cell research. What exactly are stem cells and what scientific breakthroughs can be had by researching them? Well, stem cells are cells, obviously, that are very young in their status, so they're not fully differentiated. They haven't quite made up their mind whether they're going to be muscle or this or blood cells or skin or something like that. So they have a kind of very young uh, capacity they're also able to divide and refurbish themselves. Uh, this ability of theirs to divide really throughout your lifetime in some cases and to replenish themselves is, so, is called self-renewal. Self-renewal is one of the hallmarks of a stem cell and any stem cell population has this capacity to divide seemingly with, uh, without uh, any uh, limits to it. So a good example would be in your bone marrow, you have a stem cell called a hematopoietic stem cell that makes all the blood cells. 
in your blood. It can make all the white cells. It can make the red cells. It can make uh, the cells that make antibodies. It can make cells that will clot your blood, platelets. Uh, this cell divides, and then it gives rise to a very immature progenitor cell. That progenitor cell then, through cues that are in the bone marrow, drives it to become either a red, red blood cell or a type of white blood cell that can fight infection or a, a platelet-making cell or a beet cell that will make antibodies or something like that. In the embryo, you have stem cells that can divide. Uh, if you put them in culture, they can really divide indefinitely. But in the embryo, they are cued essentially to divide as many times as they need to, and those cells can then differentiate into either skin or muscle or heart or bone or endocrine or something like that, or they can make the cells of the GI tract or something like that. And um, scientifically, for uh, purposes of regenerating uh, dead or damaged tissues or something like that, there are lots and lots of very interesting things on the horizon. So embryonic stem cells have been used um, in the clinic, um, mainly on an experimental basis. One of the first trials was the Garon trial that uh, took cells from uh, embryos, um, the established embryonic stem cell lines, and then tried to differentiate them. Uh, Hans Kirsten's lab at UC Irvine was able to differentiate them into cells that are used to make the things that coat uh, your axons. Uh, these insulating cells in the central nervous system allow nerve impulses to move through these axons very quickly. And when you get a spinal cord injury, these insulating cells tend to die off. Work from animals has shown if you can prevent the die-off of those insulating cells, you can improve the lot of the spinal cord damaged animal. They will start to have more feeling. They'll start to get a little more motion uh, in their uh, lower extremities. So these cells were made, and then they were implanted into people who had acute spinal cord injuries. The first experiments that Garon did were a, pretty much a rousing failure. Uh, people really didn't see any improvements. There was some suggestion that later on people started to get some feeling in their lower extremities that they didn't have. But Garon pretty much abandoned that. That project has now been picked up by another company, and the dosages of the cells that were given was increased, and now patients are starting to get increased feeling in their lower extremities. Uh, they're not really able to see uh, improvements in movement, but sensory improvements uh, seem to be happening. The other uh, advance uh, that we're seeing with embryonic stem cells is in people with macular degeneration and diseases of the retina. Uh, a lab in Israel and then another lab here in the United States has managed to differentiate these cells into a group of cells called retinal pigmented epithelial cells, RPE cells. These cells are below the photoreceptor cells in your retina, and they kind of serve as nurse cells for the retina. The beauty of using these cells is that if you differentiate cells into RPE cells, their chances of becoming tumorous are very low because the RPE cell type is very uh, anti-tumor. So um, people who've had these cells injected, the RPE-differentiated embryonic stem cells, uh, into their retinas, uh, the degeneration of their retina has been arrested, and after several years, uh, you're starting to see some improvements in vision. Those trials, I must say, are very, uh, very small at this point, and they're still very experimental. With um, stem cells that come from our own bodies or from uh, placenta, the news is uh, quite a bit better. So uh, the one group of cells that I talk about a good deal in the book are so-called mesenchymal stem cells. Uh, mesenchymal stem cells are found in bone marrow, but they're actually found really throughout your body. They're, they're found in fat. They're found in connective tissue. There was a paper that just came out last month uh, somebody found them in adrenal glands. They're found all over the place. They can differentiate into a variety of different cell types. And they're very good at getting into damaged tissue and releasing molecules that, number one, downregulate inflammation, two, promote healing. 
Uh, also, cells from placenta and from umbilical cord have shown to have remarkable abilities, not just to ratchet down immune responses that are afflicting people who have certain types of autoimmune diseases, but they can also take tissues that just very stubbornly refuse to heal and augment their healing remarkably. Um, there's one uh, set of reports, for example, um, uh, wounds, for example, diabetic wounds on the feet that in many cases lead to amputation. Uh, there's some, oh, what was the number I was reading the other day? Uh, close to 6 million people a year have uh, these lower chronic lower extremity wounds. Uh, the financial burden on the healthcare system is something like $20 billion annually. This is not a small problem. But uh, experimental treatments, not first in animals and then now in people, uh, have shown that not only do these cells prevent the inflammation that can prevent the wounds from closing, but these mesenchymal stem cells release a variety of molecules that promote the influx of healing cells. They prevent also uh, scarring as well. You can get uh, wounds that not only close, but they close with less and less scarring. And also in diabetics, uh, many of much of the tissue is devoid of proper blood cell formation, so the tissue tends to slough off and die much more easily. But it turns out these cells also secrete factors that can promote the growth of blood vessels and things like that. Uh, there have also been uh, several trials that have shown that um, you can implant these cells into a heart after a heart attack, and they will, um, again, ratchet down the inflammation. They can increase the growth of blood vessels in the damaged tissue. Uh, they can take away uh, abnormal um, heart rhythms and things like that, which is a big problem after heart attacks. There have been several trials uh, with bone marrow-derived uh, cells and also cells derived from fat and umbilical cord that have shown that they can help uh, the heart. Th those trials are still ongoing. Um, some companies are trying to monetize this. And then now there's a big field that's very, very interesting and coming up very fast called tissue engineering where um, you actually take cells and put them in a uh, bioreactor under certain shear forces and mechanical forces that will and within molds that cause them to form new tissues. And uh, Anthony Atala's lab at Wake Forest has been able to make uh, bladders that have been implanted into people with malformed bladders. There's uh, there was a group of experiments they turned out to be completely fraudulent where um, tracheas were remade, and it, that turned out to be uh, completely bogus. But there, there oh. is some work. Uh, yeah, that was very sad, actually. Um, there yeah, is some work I, now I, to try to, try to make uh, tissue-engineered tracheas uh, for people who have had pneumothoraces and things like that. Um, there's also new work with uh, stem cells from placenta, these cells turn out to be able to uh, not just implant in the lung, but actually become uh, cells that actually line the alveolar sacs of the lung. They can replace damaged cells in the lung. Um, yeah. Boy, I could go on. <laughs> We'd be here all day <laughs> if I kept talking about this. I, I have actually heard about the, the trachea thing, that they were saying that, that a person's stem cells was, was able to regrow a trachea. So it's kind of you know disappointing to hear that that was actually a, a hoax or a fraud. Yeah, um, there's some work in animals that looks hopeful. Uh, mm -hmm. Work in um, Denmark and other places like that, but the work that was done with a few patients that the that one Swedish surgeon and another chap from New York, yeah, that has been pretty much shown to be bogus. And in fact, the patients mm -hmm. who received the artificial tracheas died. Um, oh. Tracheal uh, molds. Uh, there's some very good machines that will make spun trachea molds. It's getting cells to grow on them, and then um, they can be implanted, but they die. Uh, it's, you have to get them so that they, they will hook up with the, the blood vessels so that the tissue have uh, good uh, blood supply and what have you. That's the hard part because you look at a trachea, you know, it's largely cartilage. It's largely just a tube, but that tissue needs a blood supply if it's going to survive when you implant it. So that's been the hard part really with tracheas. So there's a, a difference then between the embryonic stem cells and the stem cells that you find in your own body now as an adult in that the embryonic stem cells have not differentiated yet and the cells of your own body 
have. And so that's kind of the main difference between your own stem cells and the embryonic ones. And that's why embryonic stem cells are so appealing to scientists. Is that correct? Or Well, they grow really well in culture. And because they grow so well in culture, you can get large amounts of cells for experiments. The cells you get from your own body, uh, growing them outside in the laboratory can be pretty problematic. Um, hematopoietic stem cells, for example, in bone marrow, are notoriously difficult to grow in the laboratory. There have been a few labs that have had some success, but they're pretty stubborn. And even mesenchymal stem cells, they can divide several times in culture, and then they kind of sort of give up the ghost. So mm. you can only grow them a few times, and then you have to use them. So oh. they're technically more difficult to deal with. Where people, I think, have had the most success is growing uh, stem cells from umbilical cord and placenta. Those cells really have an extended ability to grow. Uh, the problem, though, is that as they grow in culture, their capabilities tends to change. So some of the early experiments that used uh, cells from umbilical cord took the cells and then grew them a couple of times and then used them, and then the experiments didn't work. Well, people discovered that if you take them and grow them several more times, several more passages in culture, the cells now change and their ability to grow actually beefs up. And now if you implant them, they do much better. So some of the early experiments are now being repudiated by other work that, that has shown that it depends when you get them in that culture period in the laboratory. So there's, there's really lots and lots of interesting work, I think, left to be done with stem cells from our own body. Um, and it's not to say I think the embryonic stem cell lines that are available don't have a place in research. I think they do. Um, we have them. Uh, there's lots of very interesting gene expression studies that are being done with them that are really opening the door to what happens in gene expression and development, what goes wrong in the case of certain diseases and things like that. But when it comes to treating people, also, I think I should add, um, it turns out that a terminally differentiated cell doesn't have to stay terminally differentiated. That cell can be de-differentiated into an embryonic stem cell-like cell, a cell that's called an induced pluripotent stem cell. Mm -hmm. Those cells originally, when they were first made, uh, Shinya Yamanaka received the Nobel Prize uh, for this work uh, in uh, 2000, um, I think it was eight or 10 or something like that. Um, those cells at first uh, seem to have a remarkable ability to form tumors, and so they weren't safe at all. It turns out now the, the ability to derive these cells safely has exploded, and there's also very good ways to screen these cells for cell, rogue cells that can become tumorous. And these are the cells people are turning to now rather than embryonic stem cells, which uh, would be rejected by your own immune system. The mm. induced pluripotent stem cells, they're much better than they used to be. There are ways to derive them that are very safe, and there are also ways to screen them that make them much, much safer. And in Japan, uh, these retinal experiments are being done using uh, induced pluripotent stem cells. And that experiment, set of experiments actually was stalled because they had a patient, uh, they derived the cells, and the cells turned out to be abnormal. They were able to show that with their laboratory screening. They said, hold the phone, we need to redo this. Once they redid it and were able to derive cells that were safer then those experiments were restarted. So it's a screening issue with those cells. And then, if that wasn't enough, turns out terminally differentiated cells can actually be de-differentiated and re-differentiated into another cell type without going through an embryonic stage. This is called uh, direct differentiation. And this, even though this has not been brought to the clinic yet, this, I think, has the potential to completely replace stem cells in general, just because your cells, it turns out, in the hands of a, the right laboratory person are not static. They can actually be converted into different types of stem cells. So Doug Melton at Harvard has been able to show you can take the enzyme-secreting cells from a pancreas and turn them into insulin-secreting beta cells that will make insulin. And it's possible in the future that we might be able to 
take cells, say, from either a bone graft or maybe a skin graft or uh, some other type of graft that can grow, very, grow back very quickly and won't cause you any trouble, those cells can then be uh, direct differentiated into progenitor cells for another type of cell. Those cells can then be beefed up in the lab, made into what you want, and then be used for regenerative purposes. I think that that has a lot of possibilities because those cells are inherently safer than uh, any sort of embryonic stem cell. We've got about 10 minutes left. Uh, I was wondering if maybe we could go through a few objections that I commonly hear to the position that, that human personhood begins at fertilization. And a couple of them even come, even come from your book as well, that, that uh, there were some good objections that I thought we could, uh, we could cover if we have enough time sure. for that. Yeah, so one that I, I commonly hear is that the ability of embryos to twin and recombine is evidence that no individual human exists before the primitive streak develops at around 14 days. And so that shows that there's no individual human being before, uh, before that point because the embryo has the ability to either twin or recombine. So what would you say to that kind of objection? That argument assumes that every embryo has an equal ability to twin. And yet when you look at the number of embryos that twin, the highest estimate I've seen is 1%. Mm-hmm. So it imputes an ability to all embryos that a stark minority has. That's not a good way to do ethics. That's not a good way to assign uh, status to to embryos. So first of all, you're, you're taking this minority capacity and you're assigning it essentially to all embryos. Do some embryos twin? Yes, they do. Do all embryos twin? No. What fraction of embryos twin? A stark minority. So that's the first problem with that argument. Secondly... Uh, It's very clear that twins, uh, monozygotic twins, where the embryo actually divides and forms a twin, monozygotic twins run in families. So there's a genetic component to twinning. That suggests then that the twin is actually already present in the embryo at its earliest stages in a latent form. In this case then, if you destroy the embryo, you're actually destroying two human persons, not one. So that argument actually, I think, can go against uh, the, this, this particular argument. Thirdly, we know from research on artificial uh, reproductive technologies that twinning rates go way, way up whenever you start to physically manipulate the embryo. Hmm. Twinning uh, is, in fact, a response in some cases to damage uh, that's done to the embryo. That damage can come from physical manipulation. It can come from freezing because uh, of uh, cryogenic uh, preservation of the embryo, a process that not all all embryos survive, can damage the embryo. Those embryos also have a higher uh, tendency to twin. So in this case, the embryo is actually twinning in response to damage. Now you have an entity that's actually healing and responding to damage. That is a hallmark of an integrated individual, something that responds to damage in response to that. So... All of these arguments, I think, uh, show me that twinning is not a very good reason for saying that the embryo is not a human person. Now, what about uh, chimerism, where the embryo can actually fuse? Well, here again, fusion of embryos is rare. It happens in a stark minority, so you're not going to be able, I think, to use that as an argument for all embryos. Secondly, here again, it's clear that fusion goes up when you manipulate embryos. So here again, it seems to be a healing event. This healing event, it seems to me, is something that is a hallmark of something that is self-integrated uh, and has a uh, an end in mind, essentially. It is a uh, entity that uh, it has a goal, and it is uh, essentially working towards that goal. And if it hits a rough patch essentially with that goal, um, it has ways essentially to deal with that. So it's responding to stimuli, uh, which, which again, that's a hallmark of something that's alive and that's living. And it's doing this also in a very human fashion. When an embryo twins, does it make a twin human and a squirrel? No, it makes two human entities. Right. Same thing with fusion. You have a person who is a human with cells that are genetically distinct, but it's still human. Again, this is not something that makes it 
absolutely different. You have a new entity that has risen essentially from the ashes of uh, two damaged entities. Um, and I use the example of the Star Trek Voyager uh, episode, um, Tuvix, where the mm-hmm. uh, transporter malfunctions and uh, Tuvox, uh, the Vulcan and Neelix, end up being fused into one individual, Tuvix. And Tuvix has characteristics that are very different from the two individuals. And um, as Tuvix becomes integrated, becomes integrated into the crew, eventually they figure out a way to separate them back into their individuals. And this person Tuvix doesn't want to doesn't want that they, they knows that their life will end if they do this again. But then sacrifices himself uh, because the knows that individual knows that the crew needs. Tuvox and Neelix for their particular gifts and decides to undergo that, essentially make that self-sacrifice for the, um, for the crew of the, uh, of the Voyager. So I think this very nicely shows how a fused embryo that has risen from the ashes of two embryos is, in fact, a distinct human person. So that's why I don't find the, the twinning or the fusion argument very convincing. Yeah, uh, I'm a, a Trekkie myself, so I, I do know which episode you're, you're talking about, and so that's a very effective uh, example for, for me. This particular objection I don't think was addressed in your book, but it's one that comes from a philosopher, Peter Singer, and his argument regarding the permissibility of stem cell research is that uh, embryonic stem cell research is morally licit because the embryos that you create in the lab do not have the potential to grow into full human beings because they have to be implanted into a womb in order to grow into into a fully developed human being. And so embryos don't have that same potential. And so at the very least, embryos created in a lab should not be seen as, as human beings or at least human persons. Uh, what, what would you say to that kind of argument? Uh, Singer's argument seems to depend a good deal on the location of the embryo and location it seems to me is a really lousy category for disqualifying somebody from the human family you make the embryo in the laboratory what do you make it with eggs and sperm the process is the same it goes through this the process of fertilization mechanistically is exactly the same the early cleavage stages are exactly the same the regulation the decision of cells to become either inside or outside, to become either trophoblast cells that will make the placenta or the cells on the inside that to become the inner cell mass cells that become the cells of the embryo proper. All that is exactly the same. What, what needs to happen then after day six is implantation. You've made it outside. You've made the embryo outside the womb. What you have now is an obligation to put it inside a womb where it will grow and mature and what have you. This then becomes a default to, well, it's going to die anyway. Well, it's going to die anyway. That argument, I think, if you want to push that argument to its full extent, why don't we do experiments on death row inmates? Why don't we do experiments on terminal cancer patients? Uh, Why don't we do experiments that will terminate their lives? Terminal cancer patients do volunteer for clinical trials, but none that will prematurely end their lives. Same thing with death row inmates. Why is it all of a sudden for the embryo this becomes all right? It's solely based on location. They're in the laboratory. There's something magical about the fact that they're in a laboratory somehow disqualifies them from being a member of the human species. I don't see how location is morally relevant at all. And um, Singer, in my experience, has a uh, a habit of making uh, ethical mountains out of moral molehills. He takes things that... um, he thinks they're really morally big deals, and they really don't amount to very much, I think, when you look at them a little from a different perspective. So mm-hmm. by creating, again, comes back to this question, what is the embryo and what are my obligations to it? You make it in the laboratory, I think you have an obligation now to implant it. And that's why I think uh, Christians who opt for in vitro fertilization should think very long and very hard about what's going to happen to those embryos that have been created in my, in my book, I say I, I, my recommendation to them is they should make a commitment before the Lord that every embryo that gets made, you implant. And mm. we have the number of kids that God gives us. Um, right. Pinger, Singer thinks because he has no obligation, therefore it's not a human person. Uh, again, I think that argument is completely based on location, and I don't think it works. 
Okay, well, we are coming up to the end of our time together here. Uh, where can people find you online? Um, I Beyond the Dish at WordPress.com is my blog site. Um, we started a nursing program here, and I'm in charge of the basic science for the nursing program, so I haven't been blogging very much because I've been writing courses and teaching courses for young fledgling nurses. And if there are any uh, wannabe nurses out there, we've got a great program here at Spring Arbor University that'll uh, train you to be a nurse from a Christian perspective. So that's my plug for huh. my institution <laughs> and uh, this program that has dominated most much of my life for the mm. past year. Um, but uh, I hope to, after this year, and I'm done writing microbiology and pharmacology and <laughs> courses like that for nurses that I can get back yeah. to doing more blogging. Uh, oh, so cool. um, uh, beyond the dish at wordpress.com. Uh, you can also email me at michaelb at arbor.edu. Yeah. Um, and uh, if that doesn't, you can just go to the Spring Arbor University uh, website and uh, you can find, find me usually Spring Arbor University, uh, Arbor, uh, www.arbor.edu. Um and that's – I'm not hard to find usually. I'm on Facebook too and I'm on Twitter. Okay. And uh, how did you come up with that name, Beyond the Dish, for your blog? Uh, because um, I spent one summer at Boston University with a friend of mine, uh, Joe uh, o Joseph Ozer. Uh, we were both postdocs together at University of Pennsylvania, and I worked with NT29 cells, which are a uh, teratocarcinoma cell line um, that are essentially made from um, tumor cells that come from germ cells that have gone rogue. And you can grow those cells like embryonic stem cells, and they behave like them. And I remember working with them that summer, and I said, boy, were these cells one time? Was this a human person? And then as I researched how teratocarcinomas are made, uh, they're not uh, made uh, from embryos. They're uh, rare events that occur within the ovary. But I said, boy, if this was an embryonic stem cell line, what, what, and I started to think of the history of if you, if you wound history back, you know, like, um, you know, the Dr. Strange movie where he d derives the ability to take time back. If I was able to do that like Dr. Strange, what would this embryo have been? And if it had been able to uh, be implanted in a mother, what would that baby have looked like? What would it have grown up into? And so on and so forth. So I was trying to think beyond the dish uh, of what those cells were. And so I said, this is a question, not just of what these cells can do in the dish, it's what they are. So that's a question that goes beyond yeah. the dish. So that's why I named it Beyond the Dish. Okay. Uh, Michael, once again, I'd, I'd like to thank you for joining me here. The uh, I, I thought the discussion was, was really interesting, and I'm sure anyone listening will, will get a lot out of it as well. Thank you, Clinton. Thank you so much for having me. Um, great to meet you. Uh, at uh, the TV station that we're both on. And uh, right. I, I love what you guys are doing uh, at your institution. And uh, anything I can do to support your institution, hey, sign me up. Well, oh, great. Yeah. Um, and I'm definitely very uh, supportive of your work as well. And so that's one of the main reasons I wanted to have you come on is to, you know, raise awareness of your of your book, which I think anyone should uh, pick up and read because, you know, it was really eye-opening for me on a lot of the things and helped me really solidify being that I don't have a scientific background. It really helped to clarify a lot of the, a lot of the issues around human development in my own mind. So I, I think it's been very, very helpful. Well, thank you. And if enough people uh, buy it, uh, maybe I can convince Whiff and Stock to do a second edition because mm -hmm. so much has changed since then. It'd be nice to actually update it, but I think I have to sell a few more books first. So <laughs> buy <Right>. the book. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So yeah, if if you've um, enjoyed the conversation, if you feel the uh, information is beneficial, we would just ask that you share this around social media, rate us and review us on our Facebook page, and also on uh, on iTunes where you can find us. And now uh, this is a, a weekly podcast, and it takes a lot of work to put together a podcast each week on top of all the other work that I do in the pro-life movement. As Greg Cunningham of Center for Bioethical Reform says, there are more people working full-time to kill unborn babies than there are people working full-time to save them. I subsist off of donations from financial supporters. People like you keep me being able to do the work that I do. If you like what we're doing with this podcast and would like to support my work as a full-time pro-life advocate, you can go to www.prolifetraining.com 
and click on donate in the menu on the top. You can give a one-time gift or you can give a monthly gift. Just be sure to put my name in the notes section so that Life Training Institute knows to put your donation into my account. And donations are also tax deductible. And if you'd like to donate to this podcast specifically, you can also indicate that in the notes section as well. Now, uh, I still have uh, one episode left that I have to to finish the post-production on, which I hope to get up real soon uh, as far as our, our actual weekly content is, con- is concerned. And that's the episode on infanticide where we had Jay Watts come on and we talked about a viral video on PersonEd with a college student from Students for Life. And so hopefully we'll get that up soon. That should be the, the next topic that we're covering on our podcast. And so once again, I would like to thank you for joining, uh, for joining me and uh, we'll see you next time. Round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.